0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and health care providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today's special episode is an excerpt from the Mayo Clinic 14th Annual Women's Health Update held in Scottsdale, Arizona. This annual conference addresses a variety of health issues that are unique to women while highlighting medical conditions that may cause different symptoms in women. Today's selected presentation, Recent Trends in Sexually Transmitted Infections, is presented by Dr. Janice Blair of Mayo Clinic. Dr. Blair is a physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases. Let's tune in.
1: Uh, objectives. Uh, my goal here is not to provide a comprehensive look at uh, all sexually transmitted infections. That would be too much for the time allotted. But really, just to uh, have you, after this talk, be able to cite the current epidemiologic trends to describe antibiotic resistant challenges that are currently plaguing uh, the infectious disease community and to understand STI screening guidelines Uh, and I've been set up very nicely by both of my uh, predecessors uh, in, in the talk. So I do want to let you know that just like for uh, menopause, uh, there is also an app for sexually transmitted infections from the CDC. Uh, it, it is just for treatment only, but it is still quite useful. Uh, they don't have anything uh, that, um, that talks about screening, so uh, that would have to be if you wanted to look up a particular CDC guideline that you'd have to look that up. So we'll look at trends and uh, the first thing to note, and I saw some of the statistics already presented, but STIs are at an unprecedented high. Uh, and That is despite the fact that we have vaccines for some of them, and despite that we, the fact that we have antibiotics for some of them. Uh, young people, uh, as we have heard, uh, Uh, are active and uh, they account for uh, at least fifty percent in some of the infections uh, for all the STIs reported in the US but if you take a demographic group that has more uh, that the men who have sex with men have more STIs than any other demographic group so whenever you pull out uh, Uh, public health statistics, you're always gonna find them that feel a little bit stale because of the year that they are uh, reporting on And, and so don't be discouraged that I'm gonna be showing you 2015 and 2016 data The 2016 is only a few months hot off the press. That's just the way uh, public health data is. So what the the highlighted trends uh, from the CDC about uh, sexually transmitted infections for 2016 uh, was that there are more than two million cases uh, for the last, uh, for that uh, year, and uh, and that was just for the top three because it gets much more when you start adding in uh, things like HPV uh, infections. Uh, but this was the most that had ever been seen in real numbers, and all... This, uh, this graph here really is just showing that uh, for gonorrhea on the top bar, uh, for uh, chlamydia on the bottom bar, uh, that the various age groups that you can see this in, and it's uh, not a surprise that uh, the young people uh, do account for uh, 50 to more than 60% of infections. But what I want to point out here is that there's still a lot of infections in these older age groups. So I want to encourage uh, our um, our uh, primary providers to be taking that sexual uh, health uh, um, interview that uh, Dr. Vengunta uh, already described. And hidden and buried in these numbers, if you look at the CDC numbers, the um, the the persons over 65, this is a group that is really skyrocketing in infectious disease, or in sexually transmitted infections. So you don't really appreciate that when you look at the big numbers, but uh, only when you look at small numbers. So I like this histogram because it shows a relative um, how, how, how big. Uh, sexually transmitted infections uh, are in proportion to others. And like has already been mentioned, the HPV is the biggest and the most common, but chlamydia is not that far behind. And this is broken down in ages 15 to 24 in the purple, and in the teal, uh, ages greater than that. So as of uh, the time this histogram was created, more than 19 million infections per year. So chlamydia infections, uh, it's a little bit of the same song every year is a second verse. But chlamydia, the number of reported cases, is going up. Uh, Gonorrhea actually looked like it was going to go down for a while. um, But as of 2012, the number of cases and the rate is going up. Uh, And syphilis is probably the one that has the most concerning rise. And this is um, the only place I'm going to be talking about this. But year over year... Uh, in 2015, there was an uh, almost 20% rise in the number of syphilis cases in the U.S. And on top of that, the next year there was another 15% rise. Now most of these occur in men, uh, and uh, most of those occur in men who have sex with men. But you can see that the women are not spared here. And in fact, if you look at the numbers from 2016, uh, there was a 36% rise in syphilis among women. And unfortunately, there's innocent bystander here. Uh, the, and the the rate of congenital uh, syphilis among newborns rose by 28% and is continuing to rise. So uh, these are important things uh, to uh, be aware of. Genital herpes uh, simplex infections at least. Visits to the uh, primary uh, care provider are going up. Uh, although I did read a little news off the um, CDC Ticker website that uh, perhaps cervical prevalence is going down. They don't know why, but maybe there's a little bit of good. So, in the uh, there was a study done a couple of years ago looking at the prevalence of uh, HPV um, by age group, and in the pre-vaccination era, um, in the light uh, purple uh, years t- 2003 to 2006, and compared that to the prevalence of HPV. Uh, in the same age group uh, in uh, 2009 to 2012. And uh, so that's more or less a before vaccination age group and a, a since vaccination age group. So in the 14 to 19 year olds, those who really had uh, uh, taken advantage of that uh, vaccination, there was a statistically uh, de- statistical decrease in the uh, prevalence of HPV in that group. And although it didn't reach statistical significance, that next age group of 20 to 24 also showed a decline. Now, uh, 20 to 29 and 30 to 34 did not show those changes. However, we're hoping that as the cohort who has been vaccinated uh, ages that we will start seeing those. So there's actually a lot of good reasons uh, to get uh, uh, our patients get that HPV vaccine. The other point of good news uh, came in the realm of HIV uh, and uh, that's because there was quite a drop in the number of new HIV infections on an annual basis. So despite the fact that there's evidence that condom use is actually dropping off, um, that. they were still seeing some uh, improvement in the new HIV infections and so the thought was well maybe because we're treating more, we're testing, identifying, treating more, that there is less uh, transmission. Uh, In addition that there is pre-exposure prophylaxis uh, that is out for high-risk individuals and uh, not only uh, treating the HIV but also treating other sexually transmitted infections can also um, account for uh, the fact that there is less HIV. So here is, again, a CDC graphic that shows uh, new infections fell for the very first time since remaining uh, stable since the 1990s. So this was really, really big news uh, in the last uh, year or so when this data came out. So there was a 56% drop in new infections among people who inject drugs, a 36% decline of new HIV infections in heterosexuals, and a 26% decline in gay and bisexual Men of uh, 35 to 44 year old age group and a a smaller group, a smaller decline, but still significant 18% among gay and bisexual men uh, in the 13 to 24 age group. So this was really good news. Uh, We're hoping that that is a trend that continues to be seen. So I want to move, I I sort of uh, preambled it before. I just want to just touch. A little bit on seniors and sexually transmitted infections. Uh, I've been set up again very nicely. Uh, Here's the first case: Uh, 67-year-old, healthy widowed woman. She had only her husband, was her um, prior sexual partner, no history of sexually transmitted infections, but she now has a new boyfriend, a neighbor man, and she came into her primary care physician with new perineal uh, pain, uh, fever, and myalgia and uh, on exam there was new uh, blisters and ulcers, fair amount of pain, and uh, the provider was suspicious for HSV, not judging ahead of time that this couldn't be it, uh, but she wanted to confirm that diagnosis. So what is the most current rapid method of testing? We'll see what you think. And and in an audience like this, it may, the answer may depend on what you have at your disposal. So um, let's see what you guys think. I think for the sake of time, I'm going to just advance here. And most uh, people want to vote for the HSV-PCR. And that actually is only, well, that's... That's not the most rapid Uh, because it has to go out to the lab unless you have someone who is running real-time PCRs every hour, which probably isn't happening. Uh, That's probably not your most rapid. And uh, there is an HSV direct antigen that actually also tests uh, varicella zoster, which sometimes can look similar. Uh, And that, if you get that to the lab uh, and your lab has turnaround uh, as needed, uh, we can get that back in one hour's time. So in our practice, that would be the test of choice. If your practice uh, really has you either doing a direct antigen or a PCR, but either way you have to send it off to a lab, then you might find that that PCR uh, is... Uh, is just as fast. The only problem with PCR is that there can be shedding. So you might be swabbing something and catching a viral shed without catching the actual uh, diagnosis. Okay, so this woman was tested uh, and and found to be positive for HSV. What's the best treatment choice to treat this virus? Is it acyclovir 400 three times a day, or 200 five times a day, Or is it famcyclovir, 253 times a day, or valacyclovir, one gram, twice a day? Or any of them will work. Okay. Yes, so the audience uh, is correct in that any of them will shorten up uh, the duration of the illness and and decrease uh, pain and symptoms um, by a little bit. So any of them can be used. And um, what about if you want to eradicate that virus, get rid of it altogether? Is it one of those, one of the three, acyclovir, famcyclovir, valacyclovir, or none of them will work, or any of them will work? Okay, let's see what you think. Yes. Okay. So everyone understands that we can't get rid of this virus. This is something that we basically are sending back to a latent state. So. As I mentioned already, there's rising rates of uh, sexually transmitted infections uh, to the CDC. Widowhood is a risk factor among men uh, who uh, perhaps spent uh, much of their life uh, with a single or a very few number of partners. Most, many of them won't have a partner who can get pregnant, so they're not using barrier protection. And uh, one study uh, looked at condom usage among men greater than 61 uh, age, uh, years of age and uh, compared it with college uh, young men and found that uh, the older group was uh, markedly uh, lower. Viagra users were found to be six times less likely to use condoms than men age 20. Okay, so here's the next case. Uh, This is just to soak in. I won't ask you any questions. This is an 80-year-old man who was a widow for two years, and for two years he'd been using some Viagra uh, and been active in the community. He he came in with a four-week history of fevers chills sweats and rash so he comes to his doctor Uh, doctors uh, scratches his head and maybe tries a few things doesn't work and then did a biopsy which showed spirochetes so this was a new a uh, new syphilis or a secondary syphilis is, is what the diagnosis was, but there was also new HIV infection there too. So don't discount it just because you, uh, it's, it's back to those preconceived notions that we think we know who's at risk. All right, let's talk about antibiotic resistance. Um, here's another case, 27-year-old woman with suprapubic pain and malaise. There's a cervical motion tenderness and a purulent discharge. The old-fashioned gram stain uh, makes, a, uh, makes a, an appearance here, showing gram-negative diplococci intracellularly. And what's your treatment choice? Is it ceftriaxone plus 10 days of doxycycline? Is it ceftriaxone plus azithromycin? Is it doxycycline for 21 days, or is it cefixime? Okay, Um, so the majority correctly chose ceftriaxone 250 uh, times one and azithromycin, and we'll go over that here. Um, Gonorrhea rates, I uh, have already told you, are on the rise and it looks like uh, the rate uh, and was super high in the 70s and 80s and came down. But the absolute numbers, even though the rate, is lower, the absolute numbers are higher. So it's a big deal. And the problem with gonorrhea, as as the history of gonorrhea treatment goes, is that it continues to become resistant. Resistance. So in the 1930s, uh, after the introduction of uh, sulfonamides, it was used to treat gonorrhea and worked pretty good. Uh, but then because of increasing resistance in the 40s, penicillin was introduced and that worked pretty good. And Then tetracyclines were introduced and that worked pretty good. But in the 80s, because of penicillin and tetracycline resistance, uh, they were no longer recommended and fluoroquinolones came into uh, the next uh, treatment regimen. So they were prominent in the 1990s, uh, but by 2007 they were deemed no longer useful because the rate of resistance to fluoroquinolones was too high. So we went to a backbone treatment of uh, cephalosporin, cefixime, and ceftriaxone. And cefixime in 2012, no longer recommended because too many strains were resistant. And so as of 2015, the current recommendation is ceftriaxone uh, and azithromycin. It's the only recommended treatment. If you look at this as a pie chart, looking at the resistant gonorrhea uh, isolates in the US. And uh, all of the pieces of the pie, other than that light blue, are various resistances to antibiotics. And the one thing I want to point out, only 55% of strains are now susceptible to anything. Uh, um, But what you don't know, and what I'm not showing you, is that last year, the year before, it was uh, was 60% and 65% susceptibility. So this... Uh, totally susceptible gonorrhea uh, that is out there is rapidly shrinking. And so it's something that we have to pay very close attention to. And here's what's happening with azithromycin. Uh, And this is a histogram uh, graphing the percent uh, susceptible at any particular MIC. MICs that are very low are sensitive. MICs that are very high become very resistant. And what you notice as the... uh, um, The use of azithromycin came uh, markedly or roaring into practice in uh, 2014-2015 and now you look at some of these percent sensitives uh, in the 2015-2016, they're getting lower at that lower MIC. And they're getting more prominent at the higher MICs. So, the more we use it, the more these isolates are becoming resistant. So, there's no reason to think that the 2018 guideline for the treatment of gonorrhea is actually going to be the final statement. And the World Health Organization indicates that in 2018, 75% of countries have resistant gonorrhea reported, and some countries have identified untreatable strains. Now, happily, there is research and development pipeline. Some of them are going through, but we'll see how that works out. Because we, I've I've been around long enough to know that uh, some of these things, where they go through trials, they end up becoming too toxic, or they are withdrawn off the market, or they never come. So we'll see how this goes. We'll stay tuned. It's really important that you treat a patient with uh, uh, gonorrhea correctly, which is ceftriaxone two fifty. Uh, IM times one and azithromycin one gram. So that's a one, uh, one stop and done. Uh, they don't have to go remember to take more pills when you send them out. There are alternatives if you don't have access to the IM uh, ceftriaxone and that is to go back and use that suffixine. But if there is cephalosporin allergy or if there is azithromycin allergy, we've got some uh, um, We've got some possibilities. Uh, If you look at gentamicin and gemifloxacin, we're looking at old drugs. You may or may not have uh, the ability to find them. They've upped that azithromycin dose just to hope that they could get that taken care of.
0: The Mayo Clinic 15th Annual Women's Health Update will be held at the Scott Resort and Spa in Scottsdale, Arizona, February 28th through March 2nd of 2019. We invite you to network with your colleagues and Mayo Clinic faculty by registering at ce.mayo.edu. Links to the course can be found in this podcast's description.
1: So let's turn our attention to screening. Now, um, the last talk was talking about screening for cervical cancer, now we're talking about screening for sexually transmitted infections. So this is a 23-year-old woman who got her first job and insurance, so she's with you to establish care. She's never had a pelvic exam. She's had 10 lifetime male partners, three in the past one year, and no history of sexually transmitted infections. So what is indicated at this time? Is it, number one, an HIV alone? Uh, Number two, HIV and gonorrhea and chlamydia screening. Is it three, which is those three plus HPV vaccination? At least assessment of whether that's needed. Uh, Is it that plus an RPR? Or is it that plus hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and uh, trichomonas uh, screening and uh, vaccination? What do you all think? And, uh, and so we have a lot of people who want to throw everything at her uh, and uh, a mix of everything else. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, when you screen for sexually transmitted infections, your, your goal is to identify and treat uh, before complications develop and before they transmit to others. And in addition, you also have an opportunity to identify and treat the sexual partner. So, uh, the risk is not the same for everybody. And uh, one of the things that I uh, admonish my residents, who, whom I also uh, teach this subject, uh, really is not to box people into a recipe. This isn't, uh, this person is here, and therefore this is what they get. But really to um, make sure you understand what the risk is because. They might not tell you the first time around, uh, and so the optimal interval is not always certain. If they are having high-risk activity and you want to test and screen more than that, that's probably okay. Uh, and if you find someone whose sex partner is uh, has been identified uh, as um, positive, then you can do some presumptive treatment. There is a fabulous summary table uh, of this information with screening on the CDC website, and uh, it's a nice summary, uh, long summary, but a nice summary, and you can um, look at that. But here's what it shows for women females younger than 25. Everyone gets chlamydia and gonorrhea, HIV testing once, and make sure that they've had their HPV vaccination. For those who've had high-risk activity, uh, especially in the last two years, RPR, trichomonas, hepatitis B and C, and what are those risk factors? A prior sexually transmitted infection, especially in the last two years, multiple sex partners, especially in the last year, recent partner who had concurrent partners, a new sex partner in the last three months, uh, exchanging sex for drugs or money or residing in in an area of high endemicity. So back to our case, which I deferred, uh, the three uh, partners in the last one year puts her in a higher risk than normal. So the screening, so the people who really wanted to do everything, uh, that was the correct answer. The next case is that of a 33-year-old woman with a stable monogamous relationship for seven years, uh, not, no barrier uh, precautions. Uh, she'd had about 15 years ago a prior chlamydia infection. She did have a post-treatment uh, follow-up uh, test of cure, which was negative, and she never had any screening for HIV. So how are you going to screen her? Is it HIV? Is it uh, gl- um, gonorrhea and chlamydia? Uh, Without HIV, is it HIV and uh, those two? Add an RPR or do something else? Okay, so it looks like the majority of people wanted to go ahead and screen with HIV only, and that is the correct answer. So here is the guideline. Uh, If there's no risk factors, HIV testing once if there are risk factors uh, such as new or multiple sex partners partners who have multiple concurrent partners inconsistent condom use outside of a monogamous partnership recent or coexisting STI's or exchanging sex for money those are the people that you're gonna want to um, screen more uh, intensively okay so back to our woman here her screening is HIV only So for pregnancy, first trimester, I think this is uh, pretty common in practice. Uh, Syphilis, HIV, hepatitis B, if they're younger than 25, add gonorrhea and chlamydia to that. And if they have high risk, uh, any of those risk factors, you're going to also add uh, the chlamydia and gonorrhea. Repeat screening in the third trimester uh, and uh, HIV infected, you'd add a trichomonas screen to that. So, when do you need? You've screened, you've identified, you've treated. When do you test to see if it's gone? So, for chlamydia, it's everyone three months post treatment, unless they're pregnant, and then it's uh, three to four weeks afterwards. Uh, gonorrhea, all is after three months, and uh, syphilis, you're going to follow up an RPR, and you're looking to find a two dilution drop at six and 12 months or four four drop in uh, titer and uh, two dilutions. Okay, so this is our last case. I think we have time. 19-year-old woman, college student, attended a frat party and was sexually assaulted by multiple men who she did not know. The next day, about 15 hours later, she seeks your advice about testing and treatment. So exam uh, corroborates her story, and which agent is most likely to be acquired in this scenario? We've got a lot of responses coming in, but I'm I wanna going to cut it off. I'm sorry. And uh, for the people who said all of them, all four, that is a correct answer. Uh, that, uh, and it's, it's a bit of an unusual list. At least I was surprised when I uh, discovered this list for the first time. Gonorrhea, chlamydia, not surprising, trichomonas, and uh, bacterial vaginosis, a little surprising. So she comes in, and you want to give empiric treatment. So what's that going to be? Is it going to be ceftriaxone, 250, plus azithromycin? Uh, is it going to be metronidazole? Is it going to be penicillin? Is it going to be a combination of one or two or everything? And uh, those who chose number four, ceftriaxone, azithromycin, and flagyl, yes, that is correct. And that'll take care of the top four that um, are present. So other things you do want to uh, make sure you take care of, obviously emergency contraception, counseling regarding symptoms that might develop, hepatitis B, Uh, HPV uh, vaccines if they haven't been uh, provided in the past, and uh, HIV prophylaxis. Now one thing I was surprised to find out, because these people aren't in my office uh, first thing, is that um, uh, the CDC does not make a recommendation for testing for sexually transmitted infections at that first evaluation, and that's because it's all discoverable. So if this goes to court, that's going to be one of the things they look at. Okay, what's a woman's risk of acquiring HIV? Is it very high, very low, or I don't know? And I'm going to not have you do your, um, your clicker here because the risk is uh, somewhere between very low, which for most cases is, and I have no idea because of course it depends on the individuals. and. Um, We'll go through that and so you'll need to address some uh, HIV non-occupational exposure prophylaxis and the first thing you look at, it isn't straightforward, but you want to look at how substantial was this exposure risk. So uh, substantial exposure means uh, exposure of the vagina, rectum, eyes, mouth, other mucous membranes or percutaneous contact with blood, semen, vaginal secretions, rectal secretions, breast milk, or anything that is visibly contaminated with uh, blood. and If that occurs in someone who has a known HIV infection, that is a substantial risk. Uh, If they don't meet that criteria, it's a negligible risk. Um, They may have the right mucosa, but not have the right uh, uh, exposure to fluids and that would be a negligible risk. So the next thing to uh, note is how long has it been since that exposure? And this is important because it's 70, it takes 72 hours for an HIV virus to make it uh, from the place it was placed uh, up to a lymph node where it will uh, become uh, part of the uh, a permanent genome of the human. So if it's been less than 72 hours then they say, go ahead and give it more than 72 hours, uh, then it doesn't matter even if they were HIV uh, exposed. Um, You're not going to give your prophylaxis. And then finally, is this or is this not an HIV infected source patient? And if it was in less than 72 hours, you're going to go ahead and give that prophylaxis. If not, then it's a case-by-case determination. So if you do decide to go ahead and provide HIV prophylaxis, it has to be started within 72 hours. Bring in an ID specialist or somebody who knows about HIV medications. CDC recommends not giving more than a five to seven day prescription uh, because they want want that person to come back. Uh, Which drugs? There's currently no recommendation that's written. Uh, We use a combination of Truvada and either Raltegravir or Dolutegravir. Uh, because it's a combination that is well-tolerated. So to sum it up, sexually transmitted infections are on the rise. All age groups are infected. Antibiotic resistance is increasing. And there's a lot of resources there uh, and available to help you uh, care for your uh, patients. So with that, sorry for going over. I will.
0: Mayo Clinic conferences welcome physicians and healthcare providers from across the country and the world. Learn from medical experts and network with colleagues at exciting destinations. Plan your next CME course by visiting ce.mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. I'm Daryl Chutka. Stay healthy and see you next week.